house of God. Wasn't that just awesome? I was thinking about that while we were singing the song, that the powerful prayer that Jesus taught us, thank you, brothers, can be prayed all throughout your life, verbatim as well, but make sure that you never pray it as pagans pray, just reciting words. And that is what I always thought was interesting, is here we are taught, if you could scroll up just a little bit for me, please, my brother, uh, into the verses prior to that. Here you see uh, Jesus saying, don't pray like the pagans pray, verse 7, in vain reputation, a vain reputation, uh, repeating yourself. Uh, everybody say that word for me. What is it? Repetition. Thank you. You know, what's hap- you know what happens when, when you stand up here under these lights? Uh, the ability to speak sometimes just goes, you know? Words that you could say normally, they just disappear. Yeah, amen from TJ. Amen. Well, I wasn't going to bring it up, but if you want an amen, I hear an amen from you, my brother. I got an amen from you. Amen. Amen. You feel me? So Repetition. We're told here, before we're given the Lord's Prayer, do not pray prayers of repetition. Say that word for me again. Yeah, isn't that something? I'm just going to say repetitively. Repetitively. You are not and I am not to pray prayers repetitively as the heathen do. Why? Because they think they're going to be heard. I've always been surprised that as the Roman Catholics, we'll be talking a little bit about them today. Don't feel like we're picking on them in a bad way. We love our Roman Catholic friends, okay? My family, some of them are still Roman Catholic. But after we are told not to pray repetitious prayers, then a father will tell you, pray the Our Father 20 times. Hold on. I thought I was just told not to pray repetitious prayers, and now you're telling me to pray the Our Father. How about I go up a few verses, and now I pray for you by telling you not to teach people to pray repetitive prayers. Does everybody see that right there? So if you want to pray the Our Father, don't pray it repetitively, thinking that the Lord is going to hear you because you keep saying it over and over and over again. Pray it. Either as it is in a whole, memorize it, pray it as a prayer, heartfelt, using your mind and heart and pray it maybe once or twice, knowing that it's going to have different meaning as you maybe repeat it a few times, but not in the sense where you're going to keep repeating it and repeating it. And then how I like to teach it as you go into our discipleship is breaking down each part of the prayer as a unique expression of prayer. So starting off with the Our Father who art in how. Uh, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Start right there, pray that. Say, you know, my Father in heaven, you know, uh, hallowed be thy name. You know, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And then just start worshiping God. Worship God for 10, 20 minutes. And if you break it down, there's six parts of the prayer. Each one for 10 minutes is an hour. So you can start by saying, you know, the Our Father, and then break down each part. And then you get into the next part. You know, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Just start praying for the different things happening in the world. Then you go into the bread prayer, praying for your provision, praying for others. How many think that's pretty cool? I have prayed that way for years, and I love it. And then there's another way that you can pray similar to that is the tabernacle prayer. The the tabernacle shows us how to have a relationship with God with physical elements. And so you start with the sacrifice. That's what the uh, priests would do. And then after the sacrifice, they would go to the brazen laver, and they would clean themselves off, and there would be a mirror there. So you start with the sacrifice of Jesus. Thank you for the la, la, la cruz. Jesucristo, es el Señor. Gracias, Señor, 
por la cruz. Am I saying that right? My Espanol hermanos and hermanas, hermanos and hermanas. And then you go to the brazen labor and then the washing of the spirit and the word. Cleanse your mind or meditate on the word of God. And then as you enter into the holy place, there's three items there. There's the table of showbread, which was there for the, the priests to make food and bread to remind them of the 12 tribes of Israel. You can eat of the word of the Lord, start meditating on the word of, word of God. There's the menorah, the seven golden candlesticks representing the seven manifestations of the spirit of God, asking God's wisdom and power and strength to come to you. And then there was um, the altar of incense where they would burn incense. There you can just begin to speak in tongues and offer up more worship unto the Lord. So you come to the altar, sacrifice, brazen labor, wash. Then you go into the holy place, consume the word of God. There you interact with the Holy Spirit, praying in tongues. And then there's six as well. And then when you go to the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant is and the mercy seat, you can begin to ask God for the things that are in your life. Isn't that pretty special? I just felt uh, led to share that with you because our intimacy with God doesn't uh, just start and end here on Sunday mornings. You know, as we knelt here, as we sung here today, as we've prayed here, as we've had words here today, all of those things could, should go with you as you go out throughout the week, you know, on your job, in your cars. How many pray in your cars on your commute? Does anybody have to uh, take public transportation and you, you uh, commune with the Lord while you're commuting? Anybody? Anybody think you're weird while you're doing it? Well, keep doing it. Amen. They're weird too, right? Because they're not communing with their creator. All right, let's go to Galatians chapter 1. Uh, we are in a sermon se- series here going through the entire uh, book of Galatians verse by verse. Just a reminder, first service, we're going through the book of John, and today's message by God's grace was awesome. I pray that you get a chance to listen to it on our app or website. And let's go to Galatians chapter 1. Last week we covered the first five verses. That's as far as we got. Let's see how far we get today. But since it was only a few verses, I would like to review. Is the review okay with you? I can review for you. Okay, let's go. Galatians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers and sisters with me. Who's writing this letter? What's his name? Paul, thank you. And what is he? An apostle. What we need to know about Paul is his conversion story. You go back to the book of Acts, and you can start around chapter 9. Let's take a little journey through Paul's life. I know I mentioned it a little bit last week, but let's take a little bit more of time here. How many believe that Paul was a converted Jew to Christianity? Do you know that that's revolutionary? Like if you're listening to the History Channel and those kinds of things, because by Paul's testimony, we have the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and that Jesus was a miracle worker. Watch this from somebody who wasn't even around, but saw him after his resurrection. Wow, that's pretty amazing. So this is not just like an Elvis sighting. This is not just somebody making up something about someone they believed in. This is someone saying, I didn't believe, I wasn't there. Then a few years later, he does believe, and now he's convinced of a belief that is in opposition to his culture, because even though you can be a Jewish Christian, they are the only religion that does not have to convert to another religion. When we talk about Paul's conversion, as it says there, we're talking really about him accepting Christ as his Messiah. Muslims can no longer be Muslims as they become Christians. You cannot be a Muslim Christian. You can't be a Hindu Christian, but you can be a Jewish Christian. 
Christian because a Jewish Christian is someone who has received the Jewish Mashiach, the Jewish Messiah, Yeshua the Mashiach. Are you tracking with me? So when we talk about his conversion, he is converting to the belief that Jesus is the Jewish people's Messiah, and that is contradicting the Jewish people. So everybody get this. Whenever you hear about Paul, and historians agree there was a Paul and he was converted, you're hearing one of the best evidences for Christianity. Once again, why is that? Because Paul was not a part of the original disciples, and yet he has the same doctrines and beliefs because he claims to have met the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ and experienced miracles in his name. What was the first miracle he saw? Blinding light. What's the miracle after that? He becomes blind. Then what's the next miracle? He then can see. He then is baptized in the Holy Spirit. So Paul experiences not only the presence of the resurrected Lord meeting him, he also experiences his power. And then because of that, now he's going to have the message of Jesus Christ. And if you look at Acts chapter 9, this is where the story is told about his conversion. Now if you go to Acts chapter 13, we see that he begins his mission trip here with Barnabas. And this time period between Acts 9 to Acts 13 is about three years while he studies with the Holy Spirit and he is taught directly by God the things of Scripture. So by the time he starts his mission trip and he gets introduced to the disciples, just look here at the end of uh, chapter 12, verse 25, when, Bar- when Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark, now in the church at Antioch. There were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simon, Lucius, Manian, and uh, who was with Herod, and then Saul. And it says, while, verse 2, they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. So after that, they had fasted and prayed. They placed their hands on them and sent them off. Now, why is this so significant that you understand Paul's beginning of this, uh, what we would call at that time, global? He's going to go to different nations and start reaching the world. This is going to be the Roman world. It's occupied by the Roman Empire, but it's going to be multiple nations he's going to go to. You know why I want you to be reminded of this? Because as Paul was sent out, we're sending out someone today, Juan and Michelle. Isn't that amazing? And we see Paul getting sent out on a mission trip, and now the rest of the book of Acts from chapter 13 go all the way now to chapter 28. Who is the main figure in those chapters from 13 to 28? Take a guess. It's Paul, and look at chapter 28. Look at verse 30 all the way at the end. Let's go to verse 28. Chapter 28, verse uh, 28. It says, therefore, Paul speaking, I want to know, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to you, the Gentiles, and they will listen. For two whole years, Paul stayed there, talking about in Rome. He ends his missionary journeys in Rome in his own rented house on house arrest, welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about who? Who did he teach about? Come on, the Lord Jesus Christ. Say it all together. Who did he teach about? The Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you with all boldness and without hindrance. Paul the Apostle, 
who met the resurrected Lord on his road to Damascus, on a road to Damascus, is converted from being a persecutor of Christians to now being a Christian himself. He then takes three major mission trips. He is teaching people things that are not even yet written down in the Gospels. The book of Galatians that we are now reading, if you want to go back to the notes, is written right around 48-49 AD before the Gospel of Mark, which is the Gospel that Peter gave to Mark, before the Gospel of Matthew, which was one of the disciples, and before the Gospel of Luke, who is a companion of Paul, and before John's Gospel, this letter has come out. Isn't that amazing? when you think of it that way. Here you see Paul, the former persecutor who has been taught by the Lord the same doctrines that these folks had been taught. He is now teaching them before the gospels have even been written. Think about that. Did you know that? That means that what Jesus said to Paul is the truth. When the Gospels came out, they did not contradict what Paul said to the point that now you know what some people try to say, skeptics against Paul. They say, well, Paul came first, and since he had all of these teachings already out, he influenced the Gospels, and those Gospels weren't really written by the apostles. They're written by the followers of Paul to now make a Jesus to go along with the Jesus that Paul wrote about. Somebody say the devil's a liar. That's not the truth at all. As a matter of fact, the Gospels, as they begin to come out, begin to confirm the things of Paul. And then Peter himself says Paul's writings are Scripture. And what we see from the disciples of Paul, as well as the disciples of John, Polycarp was a disciple of John, Ignatius was a disciple of John, and his disciples, Paul's disciples, one of them are Clement, they're all getting together going, each one of our apostles taught us the same thing. So not only was there a agreement among the Gospels and Peter and Second Peter calling Paul's writing Scripture. Not only is there agreement among Luke and the followers of Paul with the other disciples because Luke spent time with Peter and the others, there's also agreement among their disciples. Somebody say disciples of the disciples. The disciples of the disciples. Imagine Ignatius hanging out with Clement. Ignatius is like, man, who taught you the gospel? Paul. And then Paul's like, man, who taught you? John. Wouldn't that be cool to hang out with those two guys? The disciples of the first disciples. And yet we see the message being confirmed. We got a lot there from just those first three words, didn't we? Paul, an apostle. That's pretty amazing. When I think about us sending out folks today, they're going to be apostles to that church. Now, are they going to be like Paul the Apostle? No, because there are what we call capital A apostles, and it's just, just our way of describing it. Uh, in the Greek, it doesn't change the meaning, but just track with me here. We believe that there are capital A apostles that fulfill an office that could only be them, and then we believe there are smaller A apostles that could be anyone from them that now take their message and spread it to the world. The world apostle simply means one that is sent. It's equivalent to almost what we would say church planter or missionary. And so the first 12 disciples have a special role. No one can do what they did. Now after uh, Judas killed himself, who did they vote in to take his place? Who, what was his name? Do you all remember? 
Matthias, there you go. Now, if you were here last week, I said, I don't necessarily agree with that because they cast lots, and then uh, Jesus cast a man to, a ground, to, the, to the ground, right? So they said, hey, we're going to do it by casting lots. Let's see who it's going to go towards. And then they said, let's pick Matthias. And I think that was them trying to fill that spot in the flesh. And then Jesus came along, knocked Paul down, gave a blinding light, and said, that's the one I'm picking. And so, you know, we can argue about that when we get to New Jerusalem and we see the 12 apostles on 12 thrones. Their names will be written on 12 foundations. We'll see whether it's Matthias or Paul. But no matter what, Paul is given the same kind of status of those apostles. And what status did they have? They met with Jesus, they were taught by him personally, and then they wrote scripture. So for me to say I'm an apostle today, let's go to Ephesians chapter 4. I'll show you where I get that from. For me to say I'm an apostle or for now us to send out the work of uh, Juan to be an apostle, we are not saying we are the same as Paul. And go to verse uh, chapter 4 around verse 12. Let's see here. Let's say, uh, verse 11 rather. It says, so Christ gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers. And what are they supposed to do in verse 12? Somebody say it. To equip, thank you, his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature. That also means perfect, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Now, if you could uh, highlight, please, those five ministerial gifts, starting with apostle, ending with teacher, please. When you look at this, and it says he gave apostles, does that mean he just gave the first 12? No, because there's more apostles than just the first 12. Barnabas is an apostle. No matter what we do with the Paul and Matthias thing, we know Barnabas is an apostle. And either Matthias or Paul is a, another one. So if you got 12 plus Matthias, including Matthias, and then you would have Paul, 13, then you would have Barnabas, 14. Is everybody tracking with me? And then we have other apostles in uh, Romans chapter 16, Junius and um, uh, Andronicus and Junius, the husband and wife team. There would be 15 and 16. So there's going to be more than the original 12 that are going to be given scripture. So we know that for a fact. But here's a bigger question that we need to ask ourselves. Are there going to be more prophets? Yeah, the Bible says that the daughters of Philip could prophesy. How many heard about those daughters? Anybody? Nobody learned about the daughters of Philip who could prophesy. If you know where it's at, find it for me and we'll show everybody because I like to keep the class up to date with the scriptures. So there's prophets all throughout the scripture. Agabus is a prophet. There's other prophets that are not named in the Bible along with those that are named. And so there's more than just a few prophets. How about evangelists? You think there's multiple evangelists? Yes or no? How about pastors? How about teachers? So if we see throughout the Bible multiple apostles, and yet they're not all the same, they're not like the original or scripture writers, Barnabas didn't write any scriptures, and we see multiple prophets, we see multiple pastors and teachers and so forth, how about we open up to the idea that all five of these gifts can be present, but they're not going to be like the apostles that wrote the scripture or the capital P prophets of the Old Testament. How many think that's not too hard to understand? How many think we can kind of get there? Some of us? Okay. Here it is, my brother. She got, or they got it for me in the back. It says here in Acts chapter 21, verse 9, it says, talking about Philip the evangelist, he had how many unmarried daughters? Four unmarried daughters who did what? Prophesied. Amen. Any single men up in here want to marry some single women that prophesy? 
That's the kind of woman that I want. I honestly married a prophetess. Praise God. And I'm an apostle. So there's an apostle and a prophet in the house by God's grace. Now, if we go back to uh, Ephesians, thank you, my brother. We see here that if there's more than just the scripture writing, capital A, apostles, there's more than just the capital P, Old Testament prophet or the scripture writing prophet, then it's obvious, there, and then there's, it's obvious there's other evangelists, there's other pastors, there's other teachers, then it would, we would be right to assume that apostles and prophets are still with us today. Now, why are they still with us? To equip us for the works of service to the body of Christ is built up and has reached perfect faith. Has the body of Christ reached perfect unity and perfect faith right now? Do you think the body, come on, it's just laughable when you think about it. Has the body of Christ reached perfection? Do I still have a job? Does he still have a job? Absolutely. And so going back to our notes in Galatians, we can relate to Paul because we have apostolically gifted people here. Now that one goes off to Miami, let's say I write a letter to him. What am I going to write to him? I'm going to say, Joe the Apostle, to the saints that are at Miami because I've helped send out a church from Chicago to reach Miami. Isn't that going to be cool? We're going to do it on Facebook. We're going to do it FaceTime and different things, but that's how we would do it. Now imagine he's in Miami, Mike, and he sends out people to go reach the Dominican Republic. What is he going to say to those people? He's going to now say, Juan, the apostle to the saints in Haiti, to the saints in Cuba. Come on, somebody. Uba. That's how I like to say. Just have some fun up here. You guys look kind of bored, by the way. I'm doing my job up here. Just help me out with an amen every now and then. Just a little side talk. Just a little side talk. So when, when he sends out that, that, that letter to Cuba, that's how it's going to be. It's going to be like Juan, the apostle, to the saints at Cuba. That's what we're, we're learning right here. But once again, what makes Paul so unique? I don't want to spend much more time on this, but I don't want us to f- go flippantly over it. Paul is not like Peter. He didn't spend three years with Jesus. Paul is not like John. He didn't spend that time with him. He is not like James, the half-brother of Jesus. He's not like Jude, the other half-brother of Jesus. In other words, out of all of the authors of Scripture, he stands unique. He had an encounter with Jesus Christ that was established on the Old Testament Scriptures that he had been studying that resulted in three years of intense study that then resulted in three-fourths of the New Testament books and almost the half of the book of Acts from 13 to 18. And when he starts off, he is now upset with the people. Isn't that something that within a few verses, he's going to start rebuking them? I built all of that up not only to give us a great comparison to our brother, but to show you the difficulties of people in the ministry. This man had had an encounter with Jesus, and yet people are now questioning his encounter. This man had spent his whole life studying in Judaism. Most rabbis and those who came up through those kinds of schools, he studied under Gamaliel, did so from when they were children, very similar to the madrasas with Muslims. They start early on. He had probably been studying from the age of a child, and around this time, we believe he's probably around the same birth date of Jesus. So at this time, he's in his late 30s, early 40s, and people are now questioning his scholastic 
despicability. People are questioning whether or not he's heard from Jesus. People are questioning whether or not he's even qualified to be over this church when Galatia was a region that he himself had traveled to with Barnabas. Remember when we went to Acts 13 and they were sent out? These are one of the places that they went. Now the church that he planted is turning against him and now deciding whether or not they're just going to kick him out entirely. They're already not following much of what he's saying, but now they're at the point to just fully rid themselves of Paul. That's why he starts off saying, Paul, an apostle sent not from men nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. He is talking with authority of experience. I know who Jesus is. He then says who he's with because these people, they're not with the same ones he's with. He's with all the brothers and sisters. He says they are with me. That means they're on his side. Paul is now speaking to this rebellious church that doesn't even yet have a gospel in their hands, that has not probably met too many of the apostles, if any, other than him and Barnabas, and they're arguing with them about things they don't know, and he is saying, listen, I am an apostle not because of what people have said or what people have done. I'm an apostle because of Jesus being raised from the dead. I've met him. And then he says, and guess what? The brothers and sisters, they're with me. They're not with you in this argument. They're not on your side. And he says to the churches in Galatia, that, t- that speaks to multiple groups. At this time, they were persecuted. They weren't able to meet, even as, as we are here today in public, so they would meet in mostly their homes and in different uh, settings, some of them in caves, some of them on the outskirts of the city by night in persecution. And so while they are suffering persecution from the outside, they're suffering turmoil from the inside. But now look at what he says in verse 3. He says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He is going to rebuke them, but what he wants them to understand is that there is enough grace to forgive you for the mistakes that you've made. There's enough peace to bring peace to this situation. And what we can take from this is no matter what we're going to deal with in life, no matter what problems we're going to face, if we know who we are and know who our God is, we can bring grace and peace. You might have to sometimes stand up to your kids and go, I am your father. I was not sent by man nor a man. I was given this by God to be your father. And I am here because Jesus told me to be here. And grace and peace be unto you. But now I'm going to pull out the paddle or I'm going to punish. That's what Paul is doing here. He is reminding them that whatever is going to come next is for their grace for their benefit, for their peace, and it's coming from God. And now look at verses 4 and 5. Why is Paul so intense about this subject? Because he believes that Jesus was given for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of God our Father to whom be glory forever and ever. He believes that whatever he's going to deal with in these next few verses is so important that if they don't get it, they will not be saved. So he's reminding them, hey guys, this gospel that I'm teaching you right now rescues you from this evil age. 
Whatever they're offering you cannot rescue you. It cannot save you. So imagine Paul through the letter. I mean, sometimes we say like, man, we don't uh, like to text. I'd rather talk because we can't tell the tone of what's going on. There, like there could be misunderstandings. But how many know probably at this point there's not going to be many misunderstandings? Like you're going to know what Paul is saying. Has anybody ever been misunderstood in the text before? And you're like, man, I didn't really mean it that way. That's not going to happen here. We're going to know exactly what Paul means. Are you guys ready? Okay, let's go. Let's go. Let's go on now. Verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. We are now at the sixth verse, and he is saying to a congregation, you have left the gospel. Could you imagine me sending that letter to you if I was helping the church in Miami? I was somewhere other than here, and I send you a letter. And I'm like, by the way, I'm an apostle to this congregation sent here to start this church. It wasn't because of man. It was because of God. And grace and peace be to you because God wants to rescue you from this evil age. And let me just remind everybody here right now in Chicago, I am your apostle. This is authority. This is coming from Jesus. And then the next thing I say is, I'm astonished you guys left the gospel. I'm astonished now that every time I look at your Facebook feeds, all I see is Joel Osteen, Oprah Winfrey, little, little memes that don't say much. And now I'm looking at you from the outside going, what in the world has happened? That's what Paul is saying. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. When I say the word pervert, does that sound like a good thing or a bad thing? Think about that. Paul is saying they're perverting the gospel. They're perverted. Oftentimes we think of sexual connotations when we hear the word pervert because we think of a pervert, right? Like that's what we're thinking of. But literally that word means to change something from its original version. A perversion, that, that prefix per before the version, what it's saying is you're changing the version. What makes these gospel perverters is that they're changing the original version of the gospel. They're changing what it was. In other words, they're saying, okay, this is what it was like when I first heard it, but this is now what it's going to be like when I give it to you. It's almost like that phone game. If you've played it in school, when you whisper something into your neighbor's ear and then they try to whisper to the other neighbors here, and it goes round and round until the last person says what they think was said, and it was something totally silly and random to compare to what was originally said. See, that didn't happen with the gospel. People try to say, well, it was passed down and lost. No, it wasn't. It was here, it was record recorded, and it was guarded. And Paul is saying at this point, there are people that are trying to pervert it, and they're trying to change it, but they can't. But what I'm astonished by is that you're actually falling for it. Now look at verse 8. He gets even more clear. He says, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. Remember when I told you last week that Paul cursed? He's cursing right now. He's going to curse a few more times. He literally said, let them all be damned and go to hell. He says the word anathemized. He says anyone, including an angel, that comes and perverts this gospel and comes to you, may they be damned. So in other words, God damn Mormon, Mormonism. 
God damn Jehovah Witnessism. God damn Roman Catholicism. Do we love Roman Catholics? Yes, but we hate Roman Catholicism. Do we love Mormons? Yes, but we hate Mormonism. Do you understand? He literally is saying those words. That may be harsh for you to hear, but that is what he is saying. God damn false religions. I'm going to read it again. I'm going to read it. He repeated himself twice, and I'll repeat it twice. Before your benefit. I'm telling you, I have friends that are Roman Catholic family, and I'm going to read some of their false doctrines today to you. I'm telling you, we're going to go there in grace and peace. Are we not? Grace and peace. But I have to tell you this in love. No one, including my grandmother, who was raised Catholic her whole life, but I believe she was born again towards the end of her life as my Catholic aunt got saved and helped lead my dad to the Lord and others. I'm telling you, sweet Eguela and sweet Polish grandma, who always called me Joey, Joey, if they don't have Christ, they go to hell. They are damned. God damns all false gospels. God damns every false gospel. You have to get that in your heart today. It may not be as shouting message as we want to hear on Sundays, but you have to understand it's not just God damns Islam. It's not just God damns Hinduism. God damns Jehovah Witnesses. Jehovah Witnessism. I don't know individuals, but you get my point. The ism, the doctrine, God damns it. This, as what you are going to see in just a few moments, is probably the most subtle perversion you could ever think of. Now, if I was to give a survey, I wish I could demonstrate how this would really play out and, and, and really work in the favor of how small it is. Because if I asked you in a survey, what in the world do you think these guys were doing? to have Paul say, God is going to damn every single one that believes this way. If I went around here and asked you guys, you would probably say some pretty extreme things. They were probably worshiping idols. They probably had, you know, teachings that Jesus wasn't God. Maybe they thought Jesus was just a good man. They, they, they might have been a perverted cult. Maybe they were having sex outside of marriage. Uh, you know, and maybe they were taking on each other's wives, you know, sex cult and polyamory and all of that. Joe B., what were they doing in the congregation? But, but what were they doing? Circumcision. Now, I know that's painful and I, a painful idea for men, but circumcision is in the Old Testament. Circumcision was the law of God. On the eighth day, you take your boys and you bring them to the priest, and he sets down the mic and he picks up the scissors and goes, snip, snip. And if you came to Judaism as an adult, as some come here as adults and come to Christ, but if you did it as a Jew, preacher sets down the mic and snip, snip, meets you out there, sir. Pull them pants down and show me how much you love the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Seriously. Take a drink of this. Put this in your mouth. Bite down hard. We're seeing how much you love Jesus, boys. And now listen. Jesus came and fulfilled the law. Please open up a new tab, Matthew chapter 5. Jesus comes and fulfills the law of Moses. He begins to teach a new covenant. He teaches that all of those things had a reason and a purpose, Matthew chapter 5. 
Looking at verse 17, do not think, Jesus speaking, that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. And you see capital P, those men who are writing scripture. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So Paul says, I'm not erasing it, saying that it's not important. He's saying that I'm going to bring it to its fulfillment. That's why Jesus is the perfect Jew. He was circumcised on the eighth day. He never broke the moral law. He kept all of the Jewish Sabbaths, all of the Jewish holidays. Are you tracking with me? He was the fulfillment. But now go to Colossians chapter 2 where Paul will explain the doctrine a little bit further. It's a, it's a uh, city that Paul also preached to and won to the Lord. And he adds a little doctrine here from that mindset of Christ that we can insert in Galatians. But let's read it first and then we'll get into it. Look at Colossians chapter 2. Looking at uh, rather chapter 3. No, let's go back to chapter 2. He, he talks about it in two chapters, but I want to, I'd rather start in chapter 2. Look at chapter 2. Right here at the end. And then we'll go right to, to verse 3. Look at uh, verse 29 of, of, of Colossians. Chapter 2. I was looking at Philippians. No wonder I was in the wrong place. My, I was like, where am I at? I'm like, okay, here it is. Look at Colossians chapter 2. Uh, look at verse 13. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with What? With Christ. So he didn't do it through physical circumcision. He did it spiritually. So the circumcision of your flesh was really done in your heart. But let's keep going in case we don't get it. He said, he forgave us all of our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. So what did he nail to the cross? Our condemnation and guilt because we couldn't keep the law. He didn't say, now go keep the law. He said, I kept the law for you, and I took it on the cross where you broke it, right? And he made a public spectacle of them, or, or rather, verse 15, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, this is talking about demonic powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So at the cross, not only are our sins taken away and we're made righteous before God, but the power that the devil had because of those sins over us is broken. How many can say you're set free and forgiven? Come on, somebody say set free and forgiven. Do you see those two purposes of the cross? Because sometimes people get it confused. They go, well, did Jesus make the Father happy or did he set me free from the devil? He did both. He pleased the Father by bringing us into right standing with God by being the perfect sacrifice, and he pimp slapped the devil and set us free from his power as being our slave master. It's both and. Now look at it here in verse 16. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival. How many of you have been judged by uh, eating meat on Fridays by Catholic relatives? Come on, let's be honest. How many have been judged by Mormons because you drink caffeine? Nobody knows a Mormon then, okay? Well, they don't drink caffeine or alcohol, okay? How many of you have been judged by Muslims because you eat pork? How many have been judged by Jews because you eat pork? Not many people have Jewish friends. Okay, we're just knowing who you hang out with now, okay? I know Roman Catholicism is more popular than Mormonism and Islam, but you're tracking with me. Don't let anybody judge you by what you eat or drink or with a religious festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day or a Christmas or an Easter or an All Saints Day or a Mother of Guadalupe Day. 
These are a shadow. Those specifically were a shadow. The Jewish ones were a shadow of the things that were yet to come. The reality, however, is found in where? Christ. I always do this example here. You have the reality of my hand. Let's do it like this, something that may be valuable. Here you have the reality of my phone. There is the shadow of my phone. If I was given away one today, a shadow or the reality, which one do you want? Do you want the shadow of my phone or do you want the reality? You see, what we're finding out is that people often want the shadow. Well, we light candles to saints because it reminds us of the flame of God and his presence and all of that. No, I don't want the reminder. I want the actual flame of God. Well, I pray to his relatives because they're like prayer partners on earth and they'll talk to him for me. No, I'm on earth. That's why I need you because sometimes I don't see him. But up there, all I need is him. The Bible says, who have I in heaven but you? I don't need another go-between up there. I need maybe one or two down here. And then he says he's in the presence of us where two or three are gathered. It's not the same. I want the reality. Are you listening? They say as they offer communion, it's a re-sacrifice or a, a, a reapplication of the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ. No, he offered himself once and for all. I don't have to keep re-offering him by a priest at an altar. You see, these doctrines matter, don't they? If we go back to our notes, good sir, please, in Galatians 1, if a different gospel, if something can become a different gospel because you keep one Jewish law, what do you think is happening in our culture right now? These different laws are polluting the gospel. We need to go back to the pure gospel. Go to Galatians chapter 3, and you'll see indeed that it was uh, circumcision. Galatians chapter 3. He's, he's going to rebuke them even more, and he's going to uh, remind them of different curses. But let's go to Galatians. Um, let's go to Galatians chapter 4, rather. Let's do that. No, it's going, to be, it's, it's going to be five. I'm so sorry. Thank you for your patience. Go to Galatians chapter 5. Look at this in verse 1. Thank you. It is for freedom that Christ has set us what? Free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. Just stop here for a second before I make it applicable to his letter in Galatians. You have every right, sir, and you have every right, ma'am, to walk up to me at any time, put down this Bible... And say, I will only stand by what you say, pastor, if it comes from here. You have every right to do that. Do you understand? You should not stand on anything that does not come from here. You have the right to walk up to every priest, to every bishop, to every cardinal, to every pope, to every religious leader, and put down the word and say, sir... Show it to me here. Because if I don't stand here, I sink on sinking sand. This is it. Paul said, you stand firm. When we come to a Mormon, we say to them, show us your prophet here. When we come to a Muslim, we say, show us your prophet here. When we come to a Roman Catholic, we say, show us your Pope here. When we come to the Orthodox, we say, show us the, the bishops of Constantinople and show them to us here. When we meet the Jehovah Witnesses, we say, show it to us here. And when you meet me or you meet your friend or your neighbor, you say, show it to me here. 
If, it's not, if praying to saints is not here, I do not pray to saints. Do you understand? Real saints do not pray to saints. You want to be like his mother Mary, don't pray to him. Uh, if you want to be like Mary, don't pray to her, pray to him. Do you understand? What did she do? She talked to him. Be like her, talk to him. If they didn't teach purgatory, we don't teach purgatory. It's heaven or hell. Get it right now. Are you listening? If, if it wasn't taught that you could have indulgences, we do not teach indulgences. If it was taught that Peter had a wife, baby, I'm getting a wife in Jesus' name. If Paul don't want one and wants to be single, that's up to him. But the first pope, according to them, they have to admit it was married. I'm going to be married. And how many know unmarried men working in congregations doesn't work out very long for most people? What happens? Sexual frustration and a whole bunch of nastiness. And we've had it in our churches as well, Protestant. But trust me when I say they have it on a whole nother level. Homosexuality and perversion is rampant in the Roman Catholic Church. They are coming out with stats right now where they are finding that entire nations have hid tens of thousands of sexual complaints against children in the Roman Catholic Church. And these bishops and cardinals, many of them knew about it. And there's one that came out and said our current, uh, not our, but their current pope knows about it. There has been so much perversion in that church, rejected and protested in Jesus' name. Believe my church only when it's here. If you're going to call it my church, but it's God's church, but you get my point. Don't say Pastor Joe said and then go on as if you made a point. You better say Pastor Joe said from the scripture and then you make a point. Are you with me? Now listen to what he said. Mark my words. Listen to what he says. Paul is serious. We're trying to emphasize it in the English by putting exclamation marks here. He says, mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. You want to start praying to saints? You want to start going to these priests and confessing your sins? You want to start believing in a false prophet named Joseph Smith? Christ is of no value to you. You are changing what you heard. And I understand that Roman Catholicism can come under a different category than Mormonism, Jehovah Witnesses. And Jehovah Witnesses and Mormonism come under a different category than Islam and Hinduism. But I'm asking you a question. Can all of them anathemize you and eternally damn you? Yes, so stay away from all of them. But what is Catholicism in Eastern Orthodoxy? It is a version of Christianity that has become perverse, and we do well to stay from it and pray for those in it and help them through the Scriptures. Oftentimes, they'll want to talk about church fathers and church councils. That's not what I want to discuss. I want to discuss the Scriptures. Then they'll get into what a pope said, and then they'll tell you what it allegorically means. I don't want the allegorical interpretation from the pope from the 12th century. I want to know what Jesus said. Show it to me in the Scripture so that a schoolboy, a farm boy, a plumber, a teacher, we can all understand it because it wasn't meant to be complicated. If I was meant to pray to his father, he would have taught me, uh, other than God the Father, if I was meant to pray to Joseph, I would have a prayer for Joseph here. But I got a prayer to his heavenly father. That's the one I'm praying. Are you saying the prayer to Joseph is better? Are you, is that what you're saying? I've got the our father, but you want me to pray to his earthly father? I've got the prayer here of may the Holy Spirit be with you and may he keep you blameless and strengthen you. That's my helper, but you're saying I need St. Anthony?
to help me? I have the helper of the Holy Spirit. Why do I need another helper? And then once again, if they say, well, don't you ask prayer partners on earth? The Bible says if any of you pray on earth, on earth, go to Matthew chapter 18. I'll show it to you now. On earth we pray, two or three gathered together. Why? Because we doubt, we fear. All of us have issues. How many are glad for prayer partners? How many are glad someone will pray with you today? Because you're not alone, even though sometimes you feel that way. And so someone prays with you. Scroll on down, please, to Matthew chapter 18. It's going to be further on down. Keep on going. Matthew 18. Here we go. Thank you. Go up just a little bit here. Verse 19. Uh, we'll go to verse 18. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Where are we binding things, from heaven or on earth? On earth. I bind them on earth right here. Where do prayers start for us, in heaven or on earth? On earth. You're facing problems today. I'll bind things with you on earth. Well, how does the order work? Do we go to them first in heaven? No, we go first on earth to God. So it says, you bind on earth, on earth. Are you on earth today? Is your grandma who passed away, is my grandma who passed away on earth anymore? No, so I go on earth to find someone to bind things and then to bless things or to lose things. And then he reiterates, verse 19, in case we didn't get it, and I don't mean this like they're ignorant. There are many smart people of different religions, especially Roman Catholics. They have a lot in common with us, but I don't see how they miss this other than ignorance. Again, I tell you truly that if two of you where? If two of you where? On earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Where two or three gather in my name, and you can insert in earth because he's already said it three times, on earth, on earth, on earth. Wherever two or three of you gather in my name, I'm with you. So why do I need to go to anyone in heaven when on earth I have you, our Father hears us, it's done. If you asked me for $100 and that's really all you needed and you're not a greedy person and I gave you $100, are you going to ask the next person for $100? Are you going to go on and ask the next person for $100? He said, this is how you get things done. You pray. But certain times you're going to be discouraged, so you get someone else with you to pray. On earth. And then when you, two or more, on earth pray about how many things? How many things? Use the word that it says there. How many things? Anything. I'm helping you today. How many things? Anything. They ask. It will be what? Done for them. So then why is it to say, okay, when two or three of you are gathered together, you guys ask, and then now you go ask my mother, then you ask my disciple, then you ask a saint. No, he says it very clearly. He says, this is how you pray. On earth, you bind things, and I'll do it for you in heaven. On earth, you lose things, and I'll do it for you in heaven. That's prayer, talking to God. God, I bind the spirit of homosexuality in this city. I bind the spirit of violence. I'm praying even right now. Come on, saints. I bind the spirit of confusion over God's people. May they be loose from all of these religions. May every cathedral be a living church for Jesus Christ, every mosque an evangelism center. Come on. I bind that, and I loose in Jesus' name the holiness of God, the knowledge of God, the purity of God, the power of God. See, I'm praying. And then there's a few of you here that are agreeing when I'm praying, aren't you? It's done. It's done. God said it's done. Now, how things are manifested, how done is done, that's now between us and trusting God's plan for our lives. But now why do I have to do another thing? It's already said it's done. 
okay, hold on. We did all of this. Okay, I binded, I loosed, and I prayed with you. Okay, but now I'm going to make up something entirely out of the Scripture, and now I'm going to pray to Mary something that I think is going to get it more done. No, we're not going to do that. Not going to do that. Well, the angel blessed her. That's now our prayer. The angel's blessing is not her prayer. Are you now going to pray the prayer, uh, pray the blessing over every single person in the Bible? Make that your prayer. It's a blessing. You know, you know, talking about her virginity and how pure she is. That was a blessing for the angel to give to her. That's not now a prayer. Angels blessed Gideon. You're going to pray to Gideon with the blessing he got from an angel? Did they now say we're going to pray to Almighty Gideon with the blessing the angel gave him? Come on, friends. Let's get honest with the scriptures. Going back to Galatians, please. Go to to the notes. Back up a little bit, just a little bit. Paul says, I'm astonished, verse 6. Thank you, sir, that you're deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a a different gospel. The disciples would be ashamed of what's going on in the church today. The disciples would be ashamed of what we're calling Christianity. Not only now, we'll give them a rest just for a minute, the cults and all of these religions, but even in our house, even in what passes for Christianity here, people living in hidden sin, people doing all of these things thinking that's Christianity. That's not Christianity. If you could, if these people could circumcise themselves in the name of trying to please God as a law that they were trying to keep. That was actually something that God said that's good. What do you think God looks at hypocritical Christians? How do you think he looks at those acts that they're still claiming to be a Christian, but they're breaking laws? Like, and then they say they're a Christian. And let me say it to you like this. If something can be called a false gospel because you mix something from the old covenant to the new covenant, how much more is a false gospel today being allowed in our churches? People saying, oh, I'm a Christian, but they're not married together having sex. Oh, I'm a Christian, but I get drunk. Oh, I'm a Christian, I'm living in pornography. Uh, You know, I do all of these perverted things. The gospel is pure. Now, you may say, Pastor, what about those who sin? Have you sinned? Yes. And what do you do when you sin? I repent, and I allow the purity of the gospel to remove all perversion. I don't let my perversion change the gospel. You see, that's the difference, and that's why the gospel loses its power. Is now when you want your sin to be affirmed by the gospel. Because people will say to us, like, you know, last week they were preaching at the, the gay pride parade, and I'm like, how many gay pride parades do they have? Didn't they just have one in June? Now they're having another one? You know, it's like, what's going on? But I guess there was another one, you guys were preaching there, right? But, you know, if someone, was, you know, from that crowd was to say to you, well, you know, doesn't God love us just the way we are? Yes. And what we would say, what we would say back to him, but too much lets you stay that way, right? See, what we're not saying is God hates you because you're a sinner. No, the Bible says while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So we're not saying like he doesn't love you because you're a sinner. That's not what we're saying. And we're not even necessarily saying, everybody get this, we're not even necessarily saying a person goes to hell because of their sins. What are we really saying? You're going to hell because you have rejected Christ and are remaining in your sins. Go to uh, John chapter 3, verse 16, please. That's what we're really saying, isn't it? Because if people go to hell because of sins, then why aren't we all going to hell? Because we've sinned. So it's not really the sin alone that sends us to hell. It's the sin that causes the heart to reject God. See, get it. God so loved the world. He gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. How many know that's the gospel? 
For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. See, God wants to save the world. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not what? Whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not what? Believed in the name of God's one and only son. So are they going to hell because of what they've done? No, a sinner actually goes to hell for what they haven't done. Everybody get that? By rejecting belief in Christ, you are now damned. By rejecting your Savior, you are damned. Because this is what people will say to you. Universalists are out there. They will say, how many sins did Christ die for? And what would you say? How many sins? All sin and every sin. Then what they'll say is this. Hasn't he died for the sin of unbelief? And you'll say, what would you say? Did Jesus die for the sin of unbelief? Yes, it's not a trick question. Is unbelief a sin? Yes, and he died for every sin? Then how can they go to hell still if they die in unbelief? That sin was paid for. You see? That's what they're going to say. Jesus died for all sins. See, people are slick, aren't they? Get you to think in church a little bit. Maybe you haven't heard that. I've heard it quite a bit. Jesus died for all sins, yeah. And he died for unbelief, yeah. And I'm an unbeliever, right? So why do I go to hell? This is what we say to them, because you haven't received the forgiveness. Forgiveness is already paid for, but to receive it, you have to believe. And therefore, has he given you a way to receive it outside of belief? No. So the rebellion, what I believe, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, the unforgivable sin, which there is such a thing, is to reject Christ and die in that rejection. There is no forgiveness for that. In other words, you cannot be saved while denying Christ. You can, be, you can be saved if you've denied Christ. You can be saved if you rejected and been rebellious. But the life of unbelief, the choice to reject Christ and to die in that state, that place is a rejection and unbelief towards Christ and his saving work. You cannot be saved. And that is not covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. In other words, he doesn't cover those who reject him and die in rejection. So yes, all sins can be forgiven, but if you die rejecting forgiveness, that sin of rejection will not be forgiven. That is a blasphemy towards the Holy Spirit. And the way we explain it as preachers is, imagine if someone today cleared all of our debt and said to us, here is what you have to do to receive the payment paid in full, like say it was a credit card or a statement or something that they would give you. You have to come and acknowledge that I've done it. Say you believe that I've done it and you will receive the um, you will receive the statement, you will receive the verification, you will receive the application of what I purchased. That right there, that transaction is what will determine whether or not you receive or have actualized the debt. If you don't receive that transaction, then the debt has not actually been wiped away. Even though technically you could say, oh, it's gone from the books. Like, like Visa could say, yeah, he's paid off all Visa debts, but he could be holding to you now the debt to him personally and say, if you do not come to me, this debt I'm not clearing for you. It will not be accounted to your account because who holds the debts? 
Jesus holds the debt. Go to Romans chapter 8. You see, Jesus now condemns based on, or rather, Jesus allows our condemnation to remain. Jesus places the judgment on us because we reject him. See where it says here, there's now no condemnation for those in Christ? If you are not in Christ, condemnation is still on you. Now go all the way down to Romans chapter 8. This is the gospel. Go all the way down Romans chapter 8 here. One of our most famous scriptures we love, but most people go through it and don't hear. Right, go up, uh, right up to the top, please. Look at this right here. Verse 33. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is it then the one that condemns? No one, Christ Jesus, who died. Now, you understand right here where there's a period after no one. Put that in the King James for me because there's a debate over whether that period should be there. And I take it in the King James way. It's no one except Jesus Christ. So what here is trying to say is no one can condemn you, including Jesus Christ. But that is not true. If you are outside of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ will let your condemnation remain on you. Watch it here and notice how subtle that the period to the comma can be. Notice it right here. Who shall lay anything against those, uh, excuse me, uh, verse 33, who shall lay anything to the charge of God, the, the God's elect? It is God that justifies. Who is he that he who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died. Let me read it in the King James again a little bit slower for myself. The, the he's and the thou's coming a little bit, or the, you know, the th is there at the end. We'll just get this right here. Verse 33, who shall lay? It's a question. It's asking a question. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? There's going to be an answer to that. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? Do you see the question mark right there? There is no word in the original Greek that says no one there. The NIV is trying to lessen the judgment of Christ here. So whenever it goes against the King James, I side with the, the, uh, the NIV goes against the King James, I side with the King James because I trust the translators better than the NIV. That's a long story, but I want you to understand this. Show them in the NIV so they see they inserted a word here. Some of you aren't going to read the NIV any, anymore, the non-inspired version. But there's a reason why I write, I, I, I teach with it because it's easier to read. It, it reads more conversational. Who then is the one who condemns? You see where it says no one? That is not there in the original. Do you, you get what I'm saying? It, no one is not there. Go to the King James. I could show you in the Greek. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died. Do you see that? He's answering the question. Who is the one that condemneth? Answer it. Christ who died. So is Christ the one that's really giving us the condemnation? No, he's allowing the condemnation to remain because we have rejected him. Go to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. I'll show you a few more scriptures. Thank you for your patience. I just want to be clear on the gospel. How many think it's pretty important to be clear on? Here it is a little bit clearer, and you don't have to read through different translations. Hebrews 10, verse 26, please. Notice it, the one that brings the judgment after you have rejected Christ. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left. Do you see where the sacrifice runs out? Does everybody see that? Look at it again. If we deliberately keep on sinning we have, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, highlight that phrase after no. No what? Is what? 
Okay. Does, does the sacrifice run out, yes or no? Yes. When does it run out? After you deliberately keep on sinning. What does that mean? Judgment has now come. Uh, hit copy if you ever want that to be moved away, if you highlight. You see that? Now just thank you. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of truth, there's still a sacrifice? No. No sacrifice for sins is left. So can someone say after they have been deliberately sinning, I want a sacrifice now. Forgive me, Jesus. I've been deliberately sinning. Now forgive me. No. Now when does this point get reached? Theologians uh, disagree because we don't know. There's not a timeline. I play it safe. I say after death. I say when you die, we know for sure no more sacrifices for sins are left. But there's a doctrine called uh, reprobation, reprobation in the church. And this is now where theologians have said this can happen on earth, where someone like Pharaoh can become reprobate and have sinned beyond the sacrifice of God. And so don't think of the sacrifice of God being this high, and now they've sinned, 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 and they go one extra, and now they can't be forgiven. No, remember, it's in the context of what we're talking about. It's a deliberate changing of the gospel, a deliberate sinning against the Lord and not desiring forgiveness. So if someone were to come to me and say, how do I know whether or not I've ran out of a sacrifice? Have I sinned too many times? I would say the one asking that question has not sinned too many times. Does everybody get that? Why? Because in your heart, you're still wanting forgiveness. In your heart, you're still feeling convicted. This for sure applies to the moment of death. That's where I say no argument. We all agree there. But some theologians will back it up from death and say they are, there, there are reprobate people, if I could say the word reprobate, there are reprobate people that are walking around right now and there's no more sacrifice for them. I'll leave that to you to discuss. But listen to what we were going with the condemnation in the King James being Christ Jesus. After we have condemned ourselves, if we deliberately go on sinning, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, verse 26, please. Therefore, uh, Hebrews 10, 26. There therefore remains no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain expectation of judgment that will come upon the enemies of God. For God said, it is mine to avenge us. Listen to it. There's therefore now no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation for those who are God's adversaries. And it goes on further. It says that there's going to be a punishment for them because they have trampled on the blood of Christ. Verse 30, for we know him that has said, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. The Lord will judge his people. Highlight verse 31, please. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Some of you are getting it. Others of you are just saying it can't be this serious. It is that serious. I want to tell you why we went here. Because we're confronting false gospels not only in other religions but in ours. If you think as a Christ follower you can live however you want, call that the gospel and there be forgiveness, these passages speak very clearly there's judgment coming. So going back to the Galatians passage in our notes, please. What are we supposed to get from this? What we are supposed to get from this is a standing firm in the gospel. Don't let anybody move you from the gospel. Scroll up just a little bit for me, please. 
go up to around verse 3 or 4. Up is uh, lesser verses. Down would be uh, greater verses in number. Thank you. Notice what he says here, that Jesus was given for our sins. See, our sins have already been paid for, haven't they? All of our sins. But if we reject the gospel, do we get the application of forgiveness? No. There's no sacrifice for us if we reject the gospel. How precious is that gospel? It is so precious and so pure that Paul said, when people go even into the, ba- uh, the beginning of the book and put things at the end of the book, they've now perverted it. And God is going to damn them. Let alone the mess that we see in our church. Vinny, would you come, please? As he comes, would you turn with me to 2 Nephi? 2 Nephi, chapter 25, verse 30, uh, 23. 2 Nephi. Who has Nephi in their Bible? <laughs> oh, let's see if you guys are up. That's the Book of Mormon. Google it for them. Somebody's like, man, where's Nephi at, dude? And there's a second one? Man, I don't even know where the first one is. Second Nephi, chapter 25, verse 23. You want to see how subtle another gospel sounds? I could have read this today, and many of you would not even have known that it was outside of the Scripture. Many of you would have thought, if I would have read this, and I don't trick people, my teaching here, as serious as I can be, is sometimes people call it harsh, I call it serious up front. I'm never here to make you feel bad or look dumb. That's not my intention. Just like if I came to your job, you know, my goodness, you could embarrass me in every one of your jobs. Let's say, you know, you do construction. Joe, build this. I mean, it would be a mess. You know, you work with computers. Joe, fix this. I would be looking at it like, what am I looking at? Customer service. I would lose all the customers, okay? I understand that many of you here are professionals in your job. If you just Google, brother, just listen to me. Second Nephi, N-E-P-H-I, chapter 25, verse 3. Just one phrase, Second Nephi 25, 23. It will come right up like it does a Bible verse. Thank you. I know if I came to your job as a professional, you would be like, way more superior in skill, okay? And so I'm not trying, uh, you're, you're getting like a highlight of it. Just go to where it is uh, reference, you know, like Book of Mormon or one of those links, you'll see it come up. Thank you. You'll, you'll have to be patient with me if I was on your job, wouldn't you? Go and enlarge it for us here so we can all see it. So I want to be patient with you, but I want you to know how serious this is. Listen to what a scripture from the Mormons teaches, 2 Nephi 25, 23. It says, For we labor diligently to write to our children and also our brethren to believe in Christ. Sounds good. And to be reconciled to God. Sounds good. For we know that it is by grace that we are saved. Sounds good. After all we can do. There's a false gospel right there. Some of you are Mormon and you don't even know it. (laughs) Come on. I talk to most Roman Catholics and that's what they think the gospel is. I talk to most uh, Christians, they think that's what the gospel is. If I read that today 
to most of our friends and family, they would say, Amen. We are saved by grace after everything we do. I do 90, God does 10. I do my part, he does his part. That is satanic. God damns this. Don't be where God damns this. I hope we didn't get lost in the condemnation part of this sermon. Please hear that. Condemnation is already on all of us. The only way out is Christ Jesus. But if we reject Christ Jesus, there is no sacrifice for that. You can reject Jesus on earth and be forgiven, but you stay in a state of rejection. So if you want to be specific, the sin of continual rejection of Christ unto death is unforgivable. Does everybody get that? The continual sin and rejection of Christ unto death is unforgivable. There are no more sacrifices for you. There are no more second, third, fourth chance. It is over. God is now allowing you to be punished by the sins he said he would take. If you, uh, if you, ex- if you came to him and believed, he would exchange forgiveness for your sins. You would get that. And how many already have that in Jesus' name? Amen. Now let's listen to what our holy prophet, the Pope, said in Canon Law 24 of the, uh, the Council of Trent. You want to hear what he said? Somebody say, Pope? No. No, but I'll still help you today. Canon Law from the Roman Catholic Church, Council of Trent, number 24. Because of this, our saints, which we don't pray to, but they were our saints, our forefathers, had their families taken from them, were burned alive, were tortured. Read about the great inquisitions of the Roman Catholic Church. Not saying Protestants have done everything perfect, but the difference was political power, you know, rulership. They persecuted us directly because we wanted to believe in the Bible alone, Christ alone, etc. Read about it. The torturing, Tyndale, how they burned him at the stake. Some of them were so Uh, some of these Roman Catholics were so angry at the Protestants that when our reformers died of natural causes, they took their body and their bones and then burned them again, burned them in front of everybody. Here's what they said. If anyone saith that the justice received is not preserved and also increased before God through good works but that the said works are merely the fruits and signs of justification obtained, but not a cause of the increase thereof, let them be anathema. In other words, the Roman Catholic Church laid down their curses and anathema and said, if anyone tells you, anyone tells you, this is what the Catholic Church has said about what I'm telling you, if anyone tells you, that you are merely saved by faith alone and that your good works do not increase your justification, then that person is damned. So don't anyone tell me this is not a thing to be, to be serious about. They have damned what I am doing. Are you understanding? The Roman Catholics have damned what I am doing. I don't care what you think about a Roman Catholic and a Protestant. We go to the bar and tell a funny joke. I'm telling you, this is how serious it is. Paul damned what they're doing. They damned what Paul was doing. You better take serious what side of the line you're on on this. Okay? They used the same exact Greek word. Put, just, put it up so everybody could see it. 
Canon, say anathema, A-T-H-A-M-A, anathema, 24, Council of Trent, please. I want everyone to see it. This is where they got the idea of anathemizing people from because Paul said it. But notice they're anathemizing the exact opposite of what Paul anathemized. What did Paul anathemize in Galatians? Anything added to the gospel. Don't you dare add anything to that gospel or you are anathemized, eternally damned, cursed. That's literally the Greek word. They now say, unless you add to the gospel the works of your life, you're anathemized. Does everybody get that? Don't pay attention to whatever is going on up there. May God have mercy on any distraction right now. Brothers, do that, please, privately, so we don't see any more of that. Do you understand that there is a religion that has almost a billion followers that anathemized exactly the opposite of what Paul anathemized? You don't think this is serious? Paul said, I'm going to repeat it again. Let anyone who adds to this gospel including an angel or me. He even puts himself in there. In other words, he says, if I come back to you and I change my mind and I say, oh, hold on, hold on, hold on. I missed it the first time. Let me, let me correct it. This is really what, how the gospel is supposed to be. He says, if I or an angel bring to you a different gospel, let them be eternally cursed. And yet we have a religion Yet we have a religion with a billion people saying they anathemize anyone who says it's the gospel alone. Who say it's the gospel alone. Brothers, just bring the trackpad, the thing up here. I'm sorry that we're doing this, but I want you guys to see. Just bring it all up here. I'm going to make sure we get it. I think about my friends. Oh, we got it? Just bring it up here for me, please. I want you to see it not even just on a secondary site. Thank you, brothers. I want you to see it directly from their site. Just set it right here for me. Would you talk to your neighbor about this for a second? Just give me a moment. Does everybody see what this is? This is the Council of Trent. Everybody see it? We're going to go here to the anathemas. I believe it's here. Let me go here for everyone. I thought I had it. That was those were the canons. Just keep talking with your neighbor here real quick. I'm going to make sure we all get it. I'm going to put their anathemas right up here. Here we go. Well, this is, yeah, this is the teaching here. Now i got to get to the anathemas here at the end. There we go. 24. Here we go. guys want to see? Look at this. 
And then, brothers, in just a moment, we're going to get Ephesians up here. Thank you for your patience today. If anyone saith that the justice received is not preserved and also increased before God through good works. Does everybody understand that first sentence? I'll help some of you. You don't get it. That's okay. It was quiet, so I'm going to help some of you. The justice received, that's justification. How many of you asked Christ into your heart? Did you know that when you did that, you were justified before God? Okay, that's a theological term. The justice that you received, did you earn it or was it given to you by Jesus? Jesus paid the price. Remember we read that in Colossians. By him being nailed to the cross, what two things did he do? He took the penalty of the law and he sets you free from the devil, right? That's what we learned in Colossians chapter 2. That's what it's saying. It says, if anyone says that the justice received is not preserved and also increased before God through good works. In other words, if I say to you, it's in the negative so it makes it hard. Let's just put it in the positive. If someone says to you that I receive justification without increase of good works, they are to be damned. They are supposed to say to you, I receive justification and do good works to increase it and preserve it. Does that help? I'll just read it again then. That the justice received is not preserved or is increased before God through good works. If they don't acknowledge that even though they've received justice, but they're increasing it, they're preserving it by their good works. If they don't do that, they're in trouble. This is what they are supposed to, uh, this is what they are saying, but it's wrong. But that the said works are merely the fruits and signs of justification obtained. So if they say, hey, I do good works, but I do that as a sign that I've been saved, they are going to be anathemized. If you say, I do good works, and they are a fruit, literally the scriptural word bearing good fruit from John 15, if you say your good works are a fruit, but not the reason why you have justification, it says, it's not the cause. So why do I have justification? Cause, let's look at the word cause. Why do I have justification? Cause I do good works. That's what you're supposed to say. So if I ask you, sir, why do you have justification before God? You're supposed to say, cause I do good works. That's what you're supposed to say according to this. If you say, or if I ask you, why do you have justification? You go, cause I accepted Christ, you're anathemized. If I ask you, can you increase the level of justice God gives you by good works, a biblical Christian is supposed to say, no, there is nothing I can do to increase the level of God's justice to me. I received it all, paid in full the day I accepted Christ. But they want you to say, no, no, don't clap, don't get excited. This is what they want you. They want to say, no, you didn't receive it in full. You're receiving it more and more and more and more and more based on your good works. Progressive salvation. So some of you here are more saved than others of you here, but yet both of you have called on the name of Jesus. The reason why some of you are more saved according to this doctrine is because you've done more good works. So if you've done more good works than me, then you have more justification than me. Now do you understand why some of y'all got to go to purgatory? Come on. 
Even the woman, uh, the saint, Mother Teresa, she said, I don't even know what's happening to me. It's dark. I feel, I feel alone. She didn't even have assurance of her salvation. Read her last letters. Are you listening? I said, are you listening? Is this Christianity? No. Somebody say, to hell with this. Go to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. Thank you. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, brothers to the scriptures. says the exact opposite of what Mormonism teaches, which most Christians would have no problem with. We're saved by the grace of God after we've done all that we can do, right? That's what we're saved. Now, that's not what Ephesians 8 says. What is Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8? Let's say it together. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one could boast. Woo! Hallelujah! Thank you, Jesus. And so what are good works? They are the sign, the fruit of the salvation. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. I always say it like this with a child. Can a child do good works once they're born? Yes. But can the good works of the child make that the precondition to how they were born? In other words, does a child cleaning up their room make it possible for them to be born? It's a silly question, isn't it? A child doing a chore around the house does not affect whether they're born or not, Pastor. That was done already without them. Does the good works I do now as a Christian make me a Christian? No. Think about it. Come on, think about it. Do doing good works as a Christian make me a Christian? Does a child doing good works make it get born? A child is first born, and then the child grows and does works. Some of the first works of a child is pooping on itself. Then what do you do? You do a good work and you change a diaper. A lot of Christians were babes in Christ. I know I started off as a babe. You make mistakes, but what? God cleans you up. Just because you grow up in Christianity and get better at works doesn't mean you become a better Christian or you're more born again. The gospel of Jesus Christ, as we've learned here, the gospel of Jesus Christ is from grace and peace, and the gospel transforms us, not circumcision, not going to church more, not reading your Bible more, uh, not doing all that you can do. If you read your Bible two hours a day or two minutes a day, it doesn't make you more of a Christian. But what does the Bible say happens when you do those things? What happens? Look at John chapter 15. What happens is you bear more fruit. The Roman Catholic Church says, don't let anybody tell you that this is the fruit. This is the fruit of the matter. No, no, no. It's not fruit when you show good works. It's actually the cause of your justification. And Jesus said exactly the opposite in John 15. He said, I'm the true vine. My father's the gardener. He cuts off every branch of me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so it'll be more fruitful. What do you become first, a branch or a bearer of fruit? You first become a branch, and then a branch does what? bears fruit. Do you do good works as a Christian first or do you become a Christian first? Become a Christian. 
You are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Remain in me, and I also remain in you. No fruit, no a branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in me. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. How many want to bear fruit today? Amen. Let's give it up for Jesus. Come on. Would you stand up with us, please? Thank you for your patience. Hallelujah. Band and altar workers, would you come? How many learned something today about the real gospel? How many still love our Roman Catholic friends, our Mormon friends? But how many have something good to talk to them about now? You know, if you talk to somebody that doesn't know their religion, then there's no point in bringing up those scriptures. But if you talk to somebody who knows their religion, that's a good starting point, isn't it? Like you're out witnessing to your friends, and they're like, or out witnessing with your friends, and you meet a Roman Catholic. What's a great question to ask them? How do you believe someone's justified before God? How does someone receive the justice of God? And then you could give them some choices. Maybe they'll be like, I don't even know what you're talking about. Justice for Floyd? What are we talking about here? Justice? What mean? And then explain it to them. No, no, no. Say, this is what I mean. Justification means forgiveness, right, standing with God. How do you believe you get justified? Do you get justified because you do good works and believe in God? And it's kind of like a little bit of you believing, a little bit of good works. Or is it because of what God did for you and you believe he did it all? Ask them like that and then they'll tell you. I was talking with a Mormon the other day while I was preaching on the streets, and I said the same thing because they now try to call themselves Christians. They love that term. They kind of embraced it. At first, they didn't. Now, they're moving away from the term uh, moron, I mean Mormon. They're moving away from that term. They want to just be known as Latter-day Saints. And, that, and you know, so they don't want to be really known for how they're different. They want to be known for being the same. So they call themselves Christians. I said, well, Christ's gospel was forgiveness through grace uh, by faith, by faith through grace. They said, oh, well, yeah, we believe it. And I took them right to 2 Nephi 25, 23. I said, well, if you take 2 Nephi and you compare it to Ephesians, it kind of says the opposite here. One says I'm justified by grace alone through faith alone. The other one says I got to do a whole bunch of stuff. You see, it matters. And let's say you don't talk to many Roman Catholics or you don't talk to many Mormons. As we begin to pray right now, I'm talking to you, so if you don't have the real gospel, come on up, we'll pray for you. But if you're already saved, would you find somebody to pray for in your life right now? Think about them. Because I know I've got friends and neighbors that think that same way. They may not even hold to a religion, but they say, I'm a good person. No, you're not without Christ. You ever told a lie that makes you a liar? You ever take something that doesn't belong to you? Do you think we can mix this gospel with our good works? We're going to mess it up every time. That would be a whole nother sermon. I've already kept you too long. But do you know what those works do to our gospel? They pollute it. Here's, here's pure water. Put a couple of your spittle drops in it. It's polluted, right? Our good works are filthy rags to God. Do you think we're really going to impress him? We're comparing our works to the blood of the spotless Lamb of God. Please don't touch that. Let that be. Can I hear an amen for that? Let the blood of Jesus, hallelujah, wash each one of us white as snow. Don't get in the way of that. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for a church that was willing to go OT today. In the sport world, that would be something to write home about. They would talk about that today. It went OT. It was great. Lord, I pray that we enjoyed it. I know I enjoyed teaching. It was serious, but I enjoyed it. I pray now, Lord, that the gospel of grace will saturate our lives. 
If you're here today and you haven't yet received that gospel, maybe you're a mixture of what we've talked about or you've come from one of those backgrounds, ask Jesus to forgive you today. Receive the fullness of grace today because he loves you. Just say, Jesus, I believe in you. You're my Lord, my Savior. I want you to forgive me of all my sins. He will. Pray that prayer today in your own words. For any of us here that would say, man, I was pretty sure of my Christianity, but now I'm not sure. Pray it anyways. Pray it again. Repent if you've added your works to this. Do not be accursed and anathemized. Now for those of us who know we're saved, we've had the right gospel, would you make sure today you don't turn from it? Ask the Lord to guard you. Lord, I know people that believe different than me are not, smart, are not dumber than me or I'm smarter than them. Lord, deception's real. Lord, keep me from deception. Whatever deceives people into believing these canons or these books, set us free, oh God. Set us free. Keep us free. Lead me not into temptation. Lead me not into temptation, oh God, but deliver me from evil. Let me not be tempted by the religiosity of Roman Catholicism, of the outward power of Islam, of the karmic cycle of Hinduism. Oh God, let me not be deceived, oh God, by the nice families of Mormonism or by the dedication of Jehovah Witnesses or the generosity, oh God, of these other cults and religions because they do good works. Let me not be deceived by Scientology, Christian science, these various religions that may look good on the outside but are full of dead men's bones. Lead me not into temptation. Come on, pray over your family. We're going to pray for that lost loved one in just a few moments. But pray starting with you for your family. Like, God, I want to be an example to them. God, I don't want to fall in front of my Catholic uncles. I don't want to lose my testimony in front of them, Father. I pray that I'll continue my father's testimony, my aunt's testimony, who showed them what it's like to be born again, to have a real relationship with you, Jesus. Come on, a few moments. Make sure you pray for yourself before you pray for others. Take heed, the Bible says, when you think you stand, lest you fall. If anyone heard from me an ounce of pride today, please forgive me. Maybe through my stutters, mispronunciation, and forgetting of verses, you forgot I'm a mere human that needs God. But I'll say it again in prayer. Lord, let anything that came from my pride or ego be cast down in this service. I need you, Jesus. I need you, Jesus. I need the gospel. There is no one greater than the gospel here today, Father. At the beginning of this service, we went to our knees in honor of that gospel. Now, if you want to pray for a few folks, would you do that? But make sure your hearts are right. I pray for my, my uncles to come out of Catholicism. I pray for my neighbors out of Hinduism, my friends out of Buddhism, my other friends out of their New Age philosophies. Be with them, Lord. Teach them the gospel. Open their hearts.